Let me tell you what I usually do up here. <laughs> um, on Saturday nights, I make a few notes. A few notes. All right, now. Then, by the time I get up here, <laughs> uh, there are other things that are going around in my mind, and so I will usually talk about these other things for a while, and then I just might get back to the notes. Uh, this leaves David with the uh, task of <laughs> what what to call the tape. One of them uh, he named a while back, the, imp uh, the ego strikes back. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I think what I'd like to talk about, uh, first of all, is tell you just a little bit about how this church started. Because I was remembering that this morning and remembering what a pure, simple motive the few of us that started this church had. And I know that many of you don't know the story, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but I'd like to tell you just a little bit about it. Uh, a, a young couple uh, had a child uh, that was about uh, six years old, I believe. And uh, uh, the boy died around Christmas. Uh, he had been sick for some time and was expected to die, but wasn't expected to die quite yet. And this couple uh, was... They were friends of Gail and mine. And Gail was especially close to the woman. And the woman wanted to find some place to go because they were in great grief. And there was no place to go at that time in Santa Fe. This was about two years ago, maybe two and a half. And so the four of us got together and uh, at the urging of uh, Gail and the other woman, we started a grief group. And the United Methodist Church, St. John's United Methodist Church, here in Santa Fe, gave us a place to meet. We actually began in one place, and then they found out what we're doing and invited us to come over there. As a matter of fact, several churches invite us uh, to share their facilities. And so we started a grief group. And in the beginning, it was limited primarily to parents who had had a child die. Then we opened it up to people who were in grief for other reasons. Uh, they'd had a spouse die or they'd lost some other relative, close friend. And even on occasion, someone who was going through a very difficult divorce, because that is a can be a very, very deep sorrow and a grief also. And the simple purpose of the group was to support each other. It was not to instruct. It was not to inform. It was not to uh, lead in any way. But we simply came together to offer each other encouragement. To help each other in the way that that person wished to go. Whatever they found easiest. And not to suggest a best way or a better way. 
It was purely a support group. And it was so successful in the sense that people seemed to be so helped from it that we decided to start a Thursday night group at the same church. And this we opened up to uh, just about everyone because Gail and I were members of Crisis Intervention and we worked on the uh, crisis line. And at that time I was doing uh, a lot of counseling of rape victims and mugging victims and especially people who are suicidal and uh, alcoholics and so forth. So we decided to have a group in which people who had suffered almost anything and were going through almost any kind of tragedy could come, and we decided it would be the same kind of group. And that group uh, began to grow and seemed to be uh, uh, quite helpful. And at the same time, uh, uh, Jerry Jampolsky asked me if I would uh, travel with him and give talks. I had not given talks uh, outside of uh, Santa Fe for for a number of years. Uh, and the number of in personal invitations were coming in at a more rapid rate, so I decided to begin doing some of that. So I began accepting some invitations on my own, and I began traveling with Jerry. Uh, and at about that time, uh, the murders uh, began in Atlanta. And um, the Atlanta Southside Center, um, who is, uh, which, which is run by uh, Patricia Rentro, a very large medical center with a number of uh, satellite branches, was trying very much to help these uh, parents who had had, the, at this point, many of the, it was not known what had happened to many of the children. It turned out later that uh, almost all of them had been killed. But at that time, there were many of them were simply missing. And so there was tremendous grief and consternation. And as you recall, uh, there was also uh, people riding in on white horses trying to save the community. Uh, and this was being resented somewhat by the community, which this particular section where most of these uh, boys were coming from was one of the, is one of the poorest sections in uh, the country. Uh, many of the people uh, live in abandoned houses with uh, no electricity and no water, running water or anything like that. Many of them don't but it's an extremely poor uh, section. And, um, and they didn't feel that they needed people coming in who didn't have their kinds of problems, getting tremendous press attention and holding press conferences and so forth. So they felt a little misused. And of course, you remember all the statements that were being made by the police department at the time and the... Uh, FBI and so forth. It was there was a lot of confusion. So Patricia Rentrop had the idea of doing something quietly, and asked Jerry and me if we would come in and help, which we began doing. Began flying there and meeting with those parents who uh, wanted to meet, and a surprising number of them did want to do that. Uh, we held no press conferences and told no one that we were doing this. Uh, and I, at the same time, began attending uh, while I was there 
the Atlanta Hillside Chapel and Truth Center. <laughs> Fantastic church. Uh, held in a, At that time, they'd outgrown their building, and they were in a, in a uh, huge tent. Uh, and the... Uh, uh, there's so many things I could tell you about this church. Uh, Barbara King is the, uh, there are two ministers, Barbara King and, and her, her husband, uh, but Barbara King is the principal minister. Uh, I th- I'm sure she's seven feet tall, and I think, uh, I'm not kidding, I think she's probably seven feet tall, and her husband is probably about 6'10". I think he's an ex-pro football player, I'm not sure. I know the principal of the big school there is an ex-pro football player. I could have gotten the two mixed up, but they would come out in their white suits and they had this uh, choir that would begin singing before they came out. And the number that they would sing was this. I'm not going to say, <laughs> but the words go like this. God is already here. I can feel his presence already here. All you have to do is open up your heart for he's already here. And so this was sung so beautifully. And then they would come out. Actually, the chorus would come out first, and they would start singing. And the, and the congregation would sing along with them. And then uh, these two magnificent people would come out. And the music, as I recall, never stopped. It would die down and the talk would be given over the music and then when there was a pause in the sermon then the music would well up again and there there were times of course uh, especially during Barbara's talk in which there was no music but basically there was just this continuous music and for the first time in my life I heard singing in tongues if you've ever heard anything like that that is really amazing and then I began giving sermons in other churches, talks. I wasn't a minister. Came back filled with all this new music that was going on. Two of you are probably more familiar with this than I am. Uh, but I don't know what's happened since I was a boy, but there is a whole new generation of music in churches. Very simple melodies. Many people feel that they, they come to them whole and complete. And they were songs that anyone could walk in and learn almost immediately. And the the melodies were so pure and the lyrics were just beautiful. I remember that there was one at a Unity Church in in Dallas, Texas. There was a a thing that they called a chant. And uh, after, after hearing that chant or song or hymn, it kept going around and around in my mind for... uh, two weeks it was a prayer I don't know if I can remember the words but it was something like this God God oh how I love thee oh how I love thee Christ Christ oh how I love thee oh how I love thee and um I would uh, cry like I, like uh, I, I started to do just then. Every time I would remember that melody, it was so pure. Um, and the story as to how it came to the church, the church was foundering. 
uh, and some people felt like it had come to them in prayer. Uh, people from Haiti, as I recall, or it could have been from Jamaica, I'm not sure. And they brought it to the church and said, would you like to have it? And the church began growing at that point, prospering, when they began doing this chant every uh, every Sunday. So it was about that time that I was praying, and uh, you should be very su suspicious of uh, voices, uh, until you know for sure that you can distinguish between the voice of the Holy Spirit or Christ or the higher teachers, whatever term you wish to use, and that of the higher ego. It's best just to follow your peaceful preference and not get caught up in all that. There's a mania of that right now sweeping the country, hearing things. But, <laughs> but all of you have probably experienced uh, a, uh, a very definite something. A, a gentle urging or something, and it doesn't go away. It knows you're ready for this step, and it simply says this to you. And it may sound like words, or it may sound like just a little push, or it may sound like a kick in the butt, you know. <laughs> but it feels like something, you know. I haven't been a minister long yet, so I can use words like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, the um, thought came uh, for me to start a church. And uh, so I mentioned this to a couple of the people that had, had, that had uh, been helping with the groups. And they uh, thought it was a great idea. These are people who are uh, now called deacons here. Uh, and they went immediately went out and found a place to meet. And the reason that we pursued this, the reason that uh, although I thought this was a joke, this thing that had starting a church, it seemed like an absurd idea because I had visions of myself standing outside shaking hands. Did you like it? Did you like it? And all this stuff, you know. Um, and I tried to get another friend of mine, Lester Lewis, in on the thing. So actually, in the beginning, that the, uh, the the name of the church was Lester and Hughes Dispensable Church. <laughs> Lester actually never did join me on that. <laughs> In fact, he quit his job and sold his house and moved out of town. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the reason that we pursued it was that we saw that these meetings, these once-a-night meetings, were not sufficient. At least that was becoming clear to me. People who had been mugged, had been raped, battered women, people who were going through a divorce, people in grief, and people in various other kinds of uh, situations, less dramatic. They were coming back and they were being helped by the meetings, but there was no sustained growth. There was no deep change taking place. And I felt that there had to be a place where a deeper teaching could be given and where a program could be presented and where steps could be suggested and that people like this could go much more deeply into their heart and actually begin a spiritual path, uh, although I know that term is so misused. Begin their walk toward God. Begin their personal transformation, however you wish to word it. 
because it was clear to me by that time that unless someone turned away from the world, not in a negative sense, not fearing it, not denouncing it, but simply turning away from it and seeing that there was not one more thing that they wished to pursue, and began walking toward God, began walking toward the light, or began walking toward simply their belief in the possibility of peace and goodwill, with no belief in God, that unless that happened, it would make very little difference, and one crisis would simply be replaced by another crisis, and the whole person's life would be like standing in one place and just turning around and around and around, not going anywhere. And so that's how we happened to begin at the girls' club. Uh, in the beginning, as many of you know, uh, you could either take money out of the plate or uh, put it in, whichever you wish to do. We just had the, the little shoebox, whatever it was, there by the door, and you could... Uh, and that worked just fine for almost a year until we were discovered <laughs> by some uh, pros. And uh, from that point on, it was not possible to do that. Um, we tried to keep to that purpose. Um, there are very few of us that receive any money from this church. I don't. Gail doesn't. And almost all the deacons uh, do not. There, there are a couple who of people who devote, one of whom devotes all of his time to the church, does nothing but that, who receives a small salary. And there's another person who does a great deal of work who receives even a smaller, smaller so I'm talking about $50 a month for this other person. We decided not to try to promote the church or make the church grow, but simply to keep doing what we originally intended to do, which was to present one pure, simple teaching. A way home. Because another thing that I knew by then was that one of the delaying tactics of the ego, one of the favorite delaying tactics of the ego, was a search for a better way. And this goes on and on and on, and book after book, and teacher after teacher, and so forth, and nothing happens in the person's life because they never begin. And so we would present one way, and we would never tell anybody that it was the best way, but that it was a way to get home. And that I can promise you. If you have felt the touch of God's hand, if you have sensed another reality, whether you wish to use, use any religious terms or not, I can tell you that what we speak of here is a way home. And all you have to do is choose your way, whether it's this church or another church or no church at all but a book or what you already believe and you put it down on paper and you start practicing instead of just saying it. I can promise you that if you will begin, you will not have to keep doing this over and over and over over again. There is no fear in that. That is not a warning. It is not as bad as it seems to keep repeating 
and repeating until you finally say, I think I'll take a step forward. It's not quite as bad. It's like dozing off. And you know how your mind defends itself when it's asleep. It wishes to continue in the dream that it's having, especially if you have to get up a little early. You've had that experience, haven't you? Your mind wants to continue the dream. It wants to have just one more dream. But the time comes to stop dreaming. The time comes to look straight at your life and at this world and ask yourself, is there a better way than the billions of people have always done it? Attack and counterattack, and I'm right, and we must put down this group. We must walk over these, these people because we've got the way it should be done. And no matter what way is tried, it doesn't work. And it's all very funny. It's not a tragedy. It's a tragedy as long as we think it's real. But when we, when we begin to sense this other presence, this other reality, when we feel the call of God in our heart, then is the time to move, to act. And how do you do it? You do it simply. You take the simple things that you know and go forward. Don't, you see, the ego has a great love of adventure and dramatic solutions. And so one of the things that I was thinking about talking about this morning was plateaus. We talked about the ego strikes back and this, you know, losing, you know, you've advanced several steps and now you go back ten steps. But what about the plateau? Because most of you, your ego is weak enough now that there isn't quite the dramatic misery that there once was in your life. You're not calling down one breakup of a relationship after the other and one job after the other and one illness after the other and all this turmoil and you can't get along with your elderly parents and or your grown children or whatever the thing is. And there isn't as much of this anymore. There's still some of it. There's not as much of it. You can get stuck at that place for a very long time. This is not a warning. It doesn't make any difference, really. So you dream a few more dreams. But do you wish to dream a few more dreams? Wouldn't you like to know the peace of God? Wouldn't you like to walk through one day and not judge anyone? Not have a single critical, dark, shadowy thought about a single person? Can you imagine how happy you would be if you did that for just one day? But it takes enormous work. It takes great effort, but it does not take excitement and drama and adventure. You don't have to come up with some dramatic solution. And so, the other thing that I was going to talk about this morning is the St. Francis prayer. You see how it all fits in. Because it's simple. It's simple. 
The St. Francis prayer is a sufficient way home. You don't need anything else. No, you don't even need a course in miracles. You don't need anything. If you were to take that one prayer, and if you were to meditate on it every morning and throughout the day, if you were to take just one line and phrase and work on it for a week and then go to the next one, I promise you, you would get home. You could not find a better way. You could find ways that were equally as good, but you couldn't find a better way because it is so simple. And that's what we must do. If you recognize that you're on a plateau and you're not making progress, and how do you recognize that? Because plateaus begin to darken a little bit. The shadows begin to come. Not because there haven't been there hasn't been some spiritual fireworks lately. That is not a judge of it. But simply because there's this slow losing it that takes place. If you know that's happening, if you were to just do one thing, and that is to try to do everything that you do today, Sunday, the 17th, this day, if you were to do everything that you do as peacefully and as gently as you could, you would need do nothing else. Eat your lunch as gently and as peacefully and as happily as you could. Talk to the people in your car peacefully, in peace, from peace. You would need do nothing else. But it must be from your heart and you must be walking toward the light and you must realize this has nothing to do with behavior. And so let me read you a little part from A Course in Miracles, a couple paragraphs before we begin the St. Francis prayer which obviously we won't get through this morning. This is from page 252 of the text. Any direction that would lead you where the Holy Spirit leads you not goes nowhere. Anything you deny, anything you deny that he knows to be true, you have denied yourself and he must therefore teach you not to deny it. Undoing is indirect, as doing is. You are created only to create, neither to see nor do. These are but indirect expressions of the will to live, which has been blocked by the capricious and unholy whim of death and murder that your father does not share with you. You have set yourself the task of sharing what cannot be shared. And while you think it is possible to learn to do this, you will not believe all that is possible to learn to do. The Holy Spirit, therefore, must begin his teaching by showing you what you can never learn. His message is not indirect, but he must introduce the simple truth into a thought system which has become so twisted and so complex you cannot see that it means nothing. 
He merely looks at its foundation and dismisses it. But you who cannot undo what you have made cannot see through it. It deceives you because you chose to deceive yourself. Those who choose to be deceived will merely attack, will merely attack direct approaches because they seem to encroach upon deception and strike at it. The Holy Spirit needs a happy learner in whom his mission can be happily accomplished. So it has nothing to do with seeing, has nothing to do with doing, it has nothing to do with behavior, has nothing to do with smiling or hugging or patting or using certain languages. Lord, let me be an instrument of your peace is the first line of the St. Francis prayer. Notice you can leave out Lord and your and it means the same thing. Let me be an instrument of peace. Today, let me be an instrument of peace. No belief in God is required because peace is truth and God is just another word for what's going on. Let me be an instrument. A kazoo, perhaps. <laughs> a kazoo for God. Uh, I, there was a, I heard a guy described as an alarmist this week. Let me be. What, what do you want to be? So-and-so is an alarmist. Isn't that a wonderful occupation? Can't you imagine going around doing that? Now, as you know, uh, I'm from Texas and David's from Texas. And uh, uh, Now, David was in the Marines, but one thing you probably don't know about David is David plays a mouth organ. Um... Uh, Accordine. I've said that recently. No one knew what a cordine. How many people here knows what a cordine is? An accordion. In Texas, that's what it says. A cordine. Play that cordine, Jim. <laughs> Be a double bass viol. It's like a triple Leo. <laughs> So-and-so's a triple Leo. Everybody will turn their heads. When all that started happening, there was a little voice in my head that said, don't learn it. <laughs> I don't know what any of those things mean. I have no idea what a Leo or an Aries or anything else is. But I do notice that when someone says that so-and-so is a triple such-and-such, -such, people's eyes, jaws drop and everything. This is great meaning. Let me be an instrument of your peace. Of course, it doesn't mean instrument just in that way. But isn't that a wonderful statement? Let me be an instrument of your peace. You play peace. That's all you do. Peace plays you. Because an instrument is not the player. And so you allow yourself to be whistled through. To be tooted into. That's all you have to do. Just open up your heart and let the toots come through. <laughs> Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Isn't that lovely? 
didn't say love or let people know that you're loving or so forth, or it doesn't say grow love. He just sold love. You see, it has nothing to do with behavior. If you sold the love, what does it have to do with behavior? You don't have to look like a loving person. You have to be a loving person. And that's entirely different. Because it calls for no behavior. Look at all the behaviors in this world. Do you see how they mean so many different things? Of course, a behavior is not love. But if you will be love, and if you will sow love, and if you will let love toot through you, then the behavior will just fall in place. Like some shadow of brilliance that's cast behind you. Like some cape. I've been reading uh, Georgette Heyer recently. <laughs> I didn't know if I was going to admit this. But with a name like Georgette, you know that she's got to be good. Well, of course you might not. Not all forget. Not all of you are from Texas. But we have used the et. We 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 are the masters of the et. There's Ray et, so forth. The rest of the country would do well to use the. I mean, we could have things like Marvin et, Ronald etta. My grandmother's name was John etta. You see. And. Um, how did I get off in George Head Higher? Um, so, um, we'll get back to it in a minute, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, no. Now, <laughs> so we sow love. We sow love. Trying is denying. Do you see that? If you try to love somebody, you're denying that you are love. What do you think you are if you're not this body? If you're not this little soap opera? Born in one place and going to die in another. And what did you do? <laughs> what did you do? And it was so important, wasn't it? Well, what are you if you are not that? If that's just a figure in your mind, an hallucination, a dream, a, an ego, an imaginary identity. A self-image, shabby indeed. What are you? You are the love of love. You are the light of light. You are the peace of peace. But those are just words. You don't know that. You don't feel that. You are brought down by the world over and over and over again every day. You can't even make toast. Everything goes wrong almost immediately. Oh. Another thing that I was going to talk about this morning was <laughs> last time I told you that uh, Gail and I and uh, Melissa Poole, uh, David's sister, David is now David Escott Poole. You can see he is leaving Texas behind him. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, Melissa uh, lives with us. And the three of us have a single purpose for a week and, and uh, some of you told me that that had been helpful and so I'm going to show you what our purpose for this week is if you wish to do this with us I suggested last time that you set this uh, in the morning nothing has to go the way my ego wants it to because all I want is the peace of God that's a single purpose we have it for a week <laughs> 
We said it in the morning. It's the only thing we have to do. It comes before everything, the toast. It comes before it all. Nothing has to go the way my ego wants it to because all I want is the peace of God. If you would like to join us in that, you will join us. Your mind will join us. You will have strength in that. There is great strength, as we said last time, in agreement. And this would be a wonderful thing, perhaps. I'm not sure if we will do this, but this would be a wonderful thing for this body of people. We have no members here. To follow a single purpose for a day. For a week. Nothing has to go the way you want it to go if all you want is the peace of God. If all you want is to sow. Because it is not your responsibility to do anything with it after it's sown. You just sow it. Where there is injury, pardon. In other words, where there is injury, let me sow pardon. Is the third line of the St. Francis prayer. This is just a magnificent statement. And if you want to know how to heal, how to heal yourself or how to heal others, this sentence tells you everything. Where there is injury, let me sow pardon. All pain is self-inflicted. Now, of course, you don't tell anyone who is in obvious deep pain. You don't say something like to them, that to them. Because none of us quite believe it. We think that pain chooses us. That our illnesses and our accidents and so forth seek us out. And it is a mistake to go around trying to heal people. Because all you're trying to do is change things. Where there is injury, let me so pardon. So what are we saying when we are in pain? And we are all in pain. It's a very narrow, limited definition that makes some people sick and others not. Look at all the forms of pain and physical distress that we do not call sickness or accident or injury. Sore muscles from exercising. People are proud of that. But it is a pain. A pulled tendon. From uh, volleyball. You see? This people will actually tell you about this injury. So they can tell you about volleyball. But it is a pain. The body is crying out. What happens when we have an accident, when we get sick? Is that we are punishing ourselves. Now, this is not obvious in the beginning. And you should never tell anybody this. And this is just something to tuck into your mind and not try to do something with it, but just hold it there. A little secret of truth that's quite evident eventually. But it does mean this, that if anyone is obviously sick or injured, they are condemning themselves. And so what is your, what is your function? To pardon them, to forgive them, to realize that they do not need to be forgiven, that their mind is exactly like your mind. It is a part of God. It is holy and serene and untouchable, no matter what little nightmare it may be having now. Their mind is sacred. 
and you can smile gently at this and see what they will become and say to your heart, this, my brother, my sister, is totally innocent. And so you simply see them as innocent, needing no pardon in the ego sense. And if you are in pain, it is so good for you to be kind to your body because that's what you're not being. And so give yourself the little red sugar-coated uh, pill or, or, the, uh, or the little syrup that does not have sugar listed on the ingredients. What do they put in there to make it sweet? And to give and, and to treat yourself to a back rub. Don't try to figure out the illness. Don't try to figure out the injury or the pain. Don't ask yourself, what, how am I punishing myself? What is this all about? Do not try to understand it. This is one of the ego's great loves, to try to understand something. Don't try to understand it. Just realize that you're attacking yourself a little bit, and so therefore you must be kind. You must be kind to yourself on every level. And you must be kind to anyone who is in pain around you because every form of pain is a call for help. Where there is discard, union. Isn't that interesting? Where there is discard, you sow union. You don't cheer them up. You don't appease them or pacify them or cajole them into a better mood, you sow union. You realize your oneness with this person. Because, how many people have seen, did you know that Snow White made, the re release of Snow White made national news? I didn't see that, but someone told me they actually saw this on national news broadcast. And so we actually have people classified. Every one of your friends, you've got classified in a way that uh, the people in there were classified. So-and-so is grumpy, and so-and-so sneezy, and dark, and bashful, and so forth. And so you sow union. There cannot be anything but discord if you think you know anything about another person. Know nothing about another individual. Tell yourself nothing about their history. Look past their little ego, because this is just a dream they're having. And so union. Say in your heart, you and I are brothers and sisters. We are one. Look at this individual and say to yourself, this is the Son of God, and there is only one Son of God. Where there's doubt, faith. In Atlanta, I, it was, I think it was our second trip there. I'm not sure. It may have been our third trip there. We were meeting with a number of the parents. And there was a woman. I know I've told you this story uh, many months ago, so many of you probably haven't heard it. There was, a, there was a woman there from Jamaica, a Reverend Weeks. And since Jerry and I were white, 
and Reverend Weeks was black, she was able to speak to the other parents who were black in a way that we couldn't speak to them because we hadn't been through being black and they knew we hadn't been through that and so there were things we couldn't say about it and we couldn't tell them that it was all right because we hadn't experienced it but Reverend Weeks could have told them that but do you know what Reverend Weeks told them and told every person who went to her for counseling one thing she said over and over and over again immerse yourself totally in God and that's all she said that is faith you have seen how someone who has faith in you can work a miracle because that's what Tui has done these last two Sundays. This congregation can't sing like that. And he did it quickly and easily. I've seen great teachers do this before. There was a guy once told a guy that I didn't know how to dive. He said, oh, I can teach you to dive in 15 seconds. Come on over and I'll teach you right now. He had a swimming pool. He was so confident and serene about it that I followed him over there. He walked down on the board. He went bump, 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 plop. He said, that's how you do it. He gave me little steps. First you do this, then you do this, then you do this. It's very simple. Go out and do it. I got up there, walked out, plop, 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 and jumped right in. And I had tried that before on my own and had hurt my body <laughs> in many strange places. He knew I could do it. He, he wasn't overly confident. He knew. You have seen with a man like Tui that he simply knows what you can do and there isn't any doubt in his mind, so he just says, do it, and you do it. That is what it means to sow faith. You do not have an opinion. You do not argue. There was a, a woman back here I was counseling after one of the services and uh, who was uh, suicidal several months ago. And um, outside, there was a man talking to his, I guess, his girlfriend. And he was going on and on and on and on and on. And what we did was we just closed our eyes. And I said, listen to this man's voice. I didn't know who it was. I still don't know who it was. But he was explaining to her. I don't know what he was explaining, but it had something to do with their relationship. And something that she hadn't been honest about and so forth. And he was going on and on. And you've never heard such a spiritual vocabulary. This man had it mastered. And I said, just listen to the voice of the ego. This wasn't a judgment. I didn't know who the person was. But clearly, at that moment, the man was in his ego and he didn't realize it. He thought he was spouting true, pure truth. And I said, this is all that's happening. This is why you're suicidal, is you're listening to that voice. Now listen to it from someone else's mouth. Do you see what it says? It gives you reasons. It explains things. It has all these arguments. And it's all very spiritual. And you see how depressing it is? And can you imagine the woman's face? She's listening to this. Can you imagine? And we could. I don't know, you know. 
never explain. Did you notice that Tui didn't explain a lot? Dr. Sham doesn't explain a lot. Mother Teresa doesn't explain a lot. I'm putting you in good company. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you sow faith, which means you know it, and therefore you're quiet. There's no need to say anything. Well, let's see. We only got through one, two, three, four, five lines of the St. Francis prayer. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll take it up again next Sunday. Uh, and, uh, oh, well, the next one. We'll end, we'll end with the next one. And then Tui is going to lead you in that lovely thing that we did last Sunday, more love. That will be our benediction. So let's end with this. Where there is darkness, light. Where there's darkness, you're going to sow light. Isn't that a nice concept? Sowing light calls for no behavior. It doesn't call for white teeth. <laughs> oh, I got a letter from a dentist this last week. It says, gentle dentistry, saving smiles. Isn't that nice? All right. So... I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and we'll do a little meditation in which we will sow some light. We've done this, I think, before in this church. And uh, this comes from one of my books, but it's the best thing in the book, so don't buy it. Um, you'll, you'll know it now. Uh, your eyes closed, I want you to picture yourself as Robin Hood. Uh, you've got a, one of those little uh, sheaves out there called you put the arrows in. She, quiver, a quiver. Oh, that's a great word. Uh, you've got a little quiver on your back. Or, if you're a golfer, you've got a little uh, golf club. So you've got a little quiver or a little golf bag over your shoulder. Now picture which shoulder it's in. Now, this little golf bag or quiver is filled with balls of light. Little balls of light. I want you to imagine that for just a moment. You can see how light it is on your shoulder because that's all it contains. And now, mentally, I want you to reach back and I want you to take out one of these balls of light with your eyes closed. I want you to hold it for just a moment in your hands. Feel how soft and warm. Do you feel how it's blessing your hand? It brings peace to your hand. It brings warmth to your hand. Now, you'll bet you didn't know this. If you throw the ball up in the air, it doubles in size. And so, do that right now with your eyes closed. Just picture yourself throwing it up in the air and see it doubled in size. Now, Holding that ball in your hands, I want you to think of your life in the world around you for just a moment. And where is there darkness? Where is there darkness in your life or in other people's life? In your house, on the left side of your car, wherever it may be. Where is there darkness? With in-laws, with children, with job, with health with some 
embarrassing thing that happened in the past? Some catastrophe that you think is about to befall you? Some betrayal? Some slight? Where is their darkness? And now, just pick one of those dark areas. It could be anything. Someone, some friend of yours who is sick in a hospital. Any, anything at all. Something to do with you, some part of your body. It makes no difference where the shadow appears to lie. Because it lies in your mind. And all you ever have to heal is your mind. And so now, take this ball of light. And by tossing it gently up, make it whatever size you would like to make it. Make it big enough to do the job. And then you can blow it or you can pass it like a basketball or kick it like a soccer ball. You can throw it. You can even will it, transport it. You can do anything you wish but send the ball of light to the place of darkness and see it settle over this place of darkness and settle into it and so this light. And say in your heart, I know I have done more than just a silly game. Because right now your heart is one with God's. And you seek no change. You are merely sowing the light not making it grow, not asking what will happen, but sowing it, passing it along. 